Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text for this Pentecost Sunday will be taken from the reading in the book of Genesis. You may be seated. We begin this morning with a word of prayer. Merciful Father, you have gathered us here together as one this day to hear your word. And though we come here with different backgrounds, different lives, different experiences, you have united us with this, the forgiveness of our sins. And so we pray this day, Lord, that we would be united again by your word. I pray, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were with us last week, you were able to listen in on a prayer that Jesus prayed for you. A prayer Jesus prayed for me, a prayer that Jesus prayed for all of us, for for his beloved church. And in this prayer, we heard Jesus pray for the unity of his church. He prayed that we would be one, even as he and his Father are one. He prayed for unity in the church. And as we get into our message today, we need to remember just how tremendously important unity is, especially in our world, and especially in our church which seems to be so fragmented and divided throughout the world the lord jesus prays for us to be one and the unity that we have within the church is always a work of and a gift from the holy spirit unity in the church is a gift it is a gift from god and though christ prays for our unity we have to recognize today That not all unity is good unity. Not everything that unites us is necessarily a good thing. As with anything that is good in this world, sometimes it's good and we turn it into something that is ultimate and primary. It becomes the goal. And soon we will find that oftentimes unity, though when given from the Spirit is a good thing, when we try and take unity into our own hands, so often can become an idol that we worship. And what we'll find is people in the culture and people even in the church will begin to compromise on truth for the sake of some sort of superficial unity. Further, one of the things we talked about last week is that one of the things that unites everybody in this world is our sinfulness. And so very often something that will unite us together is a sinful cause or a sinful purpose. And what we have to recognize is that just because something is good and helpful or excuse me, just because something unites us together and just because a whole lot of people say it is good and helpful doesn't actually make it so. This is what we see taking place today in our account of the Tower of Babel. Now, what we're going to do this morning here is a little history work through the book of Genesis. Genesis is sort of the ancient history of the world showing us how God prepared all the way from the beginning uh, his people for the coming of, of Jesus. And as we go back and look at this history, we have this very fascinating account of the Tower of Babel. Now, in order to understand exactly what's going on here in this account, we need to do a little bit more work ahead of time. The Tower of Babel, if you're doing your your, uh, uh, chronology here, the Tower of Babel comes after the flood. 
You remember how God flooded the whole world and he saved Noah and his family in the ark? You remember this? Now, uh, the flood waters have subsided and God has come to Noah and his uh, children and he said to them, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to, to disperse yourselves throughout the earth. Take control of the whole thing. Care for my entire creation. And so he sends Noah and his progeny, or, uh, yeah, Noah and his progeny out uh, to fill the whole earth. God flooded the earth and wiped out all the people and their sinfulness. He did not remove sinfulness from the heart of mankind. And it does not take long for people to begin to rebel against God's will. And so a number of generations after Noah and his family went out, we see these people gathering together at this place that we will know as the Tower of Babel, where they begin to build the Tower of Babel. And they gather together in this location and they say, we want to make a name for ourselves and so let's set up shop here lest we have to be dispersed throughout the world. In other words, they began to gather and build a city in opposition to the will of God. They were united together against the will of God and they began to build this tower to make a name for themselves. They wanted to become powerful, and they wanted to become uh, famous. They wanted to be known, and further, they wanted to get to God. They wanted to try and climb up into the heavens and find God. So they built this tower, which if you know anything about uh, uh, sort of ancient worship, it would be called a ziggurat, and a ziggurat uh, was a, a gathering place uh, for worship where they would offer sacrifices to their gods and try and, in a sense, climb up into the heavens. And so notice what the people are doing here today as we get to the tower. Uh, they're building this tower in opposition to God's will. They are united in a way that is disobedient to God's will. It's not just that they united together for a common cause. They united together in a way that was opposed to what God wanted them to do. God wanted them to disperse and fill the earth. They wanted to stay put. God created them to serve him and love his creation. But they wanted to make a name for themselves in their pride. And such sin and pride is going to be destructive to God's creation. And he knows it. And so he comes down to see the work they are doing. Now that's a funny way of saying it, right? Like God comes down to see the work they're doing. We say, well, isn't God all-knowing and all-powerful? Wouldn't he know what they're doing? Yes, but this is kind of a joke that Moses wrote into the passage. These people are building this massive tower to make a name for themselves and show how powerful and wonderful they are. And God can't really see it from up in heaven, so he has to come down and take a look. It's not all that impressive to him. That's the joke. It's funny. All right. Now, God comes down and he sees this, and he realizes uh, what this sinfulness is going to do, and this is what God says. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Now, though that is a phrase you may hear at a junior high graduation this week, this is not a good thing. All right. This is not some pep talk from a coach. This is God's announcement kind is bent on destroying his world in rebellion and if he does not intervene they're going to do it so god disrupts their sinful unity and causes them all to speak in different languages thus setting them out ironically enough to be dispersed once again throughout the earth and to fulfill it and to do his will now as we think about the tower of babel in our own situation today we have to recognize that in our world, there are a lot of good causes to unite around. There is a lot worth fighting for in this world. But we must be careful, lest we begin to seek unity as an end unto itself, so that this unity becomes more important to us than faithfulness to God. 
Further, we have to be careful lest we unite together in a way that opposes God. As we think about the Tower of Babel, it begins to strike me as I look at our culture right now. We're sort of moving in a very sort of Babel-style direction, especially when it comes to sort of the morality in our society, if you think about this. I used to think uh, that the world was kind of operating this way, and this would be the end of the world, uh, that every single person would have their own morality, and everybody did what they wanted to do, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and I had my morality, and you had your morality, and if we don't run into each other, everything's going to be fine. And we used to live in this world where everyone believed in something called moral relativism. Have you heard that phrase before, moral relativism? Everybody has their own morals, everyone has their own ethics. I'm beginning to think we're moving out of that time, and not in a good way. Used to be, everyone had like the moral, we had the moral relativism going on. Now what we have, I think, is the creation of a new morality. And what we're witnessing take place in our society is uh, the, the sort of Babel-style building of a new morality that is opposed to the way God created and designed things to work. So we're redefining the way the world is structured. We're redefining family. We're redefining gender. We're redefining what a child is. We're redefining everything. And in doing this, the structure of society is kind of being torn apart. Now what happens when you build a new morality, what happens when you build a new way of doing things in opposition to God's way of doing things is things get very bad in the world. And anybody who tries to sort of stand opposed to the new morality, anyone who tries to stand opposed to the building of the Tower of Babel, well, they will be removed in one way or another. That is not good. (laughs) Hermann Sasse, who was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II, uh, would describe it this way. He says that this sort of thinking results in the world turning into one big cemetery. And that seems to be where we're headed. We have to recognize that God's judgment will come upon societies for such babble activity. But I fear we in the church aren't much better at this. It's remarkable to look throughout the history of the church how often we're very quick to adjust and move the which words of God we decide to follow in the scriptures. Which ones are we going to ignore? Which ones are we going to obey? Which ones are we going to build our lives around? And which ones are we going to kind of just pretend aren't there? And even Christians can be found being guilty of creating some sort of religion and understanding of God apart from and other than the Word of God. And God is not pleased with such things. So this is where we find ourselves today. It's no place new. It's nothing different than we found back there in the Tower of Babel. So what hope can we have in this? What sort of salvation will there be for those of us who live in such a Babel-bound society? Well, notice what God does back in Genesis. Now, let's go back to Genesis and think through the history here. As God has now dispersed the people from Babylon, he's dispersing the people throughout the earth, he decides to do something rather fascinating. He decides to pick one of the people that he's dispersed. He decides to pick one person from one family who's been spread out, and he decided to make a promise to that guy. And this is the account of Abraham. We know the story of Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to make a promise to you that your wife, who was barren and a little bit past the age of giving birth by about 70 years, uh, she is going to have a child. Sarah will have a child. And from that child, 
you will have descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And from those descendants, I will send a Savior, a Messiah, who will rescue this world from its bondage to sin and its Babel-bound ways. And to Abraham, God promises to send Jesus, a descendant who will restore all things to the good. So fast forward now a couple thousand years, and the Father sends the Son. And Christ comes in a rather surprising way. He doesn't walk down the steps of a ziggurat in power and glory. He doesn't come down in a way to draw all kinds of attention to himself. Rather, he comes in the womb of a virgin. And he decides to reunite the world to himself, not with an iron fist by forcing people to fall into a mold that he designs for them. Rather, he decides to unite the world together again, to unite his church together again through his love expressed in his sacrifice as he dies on the cross for the salvation of the world. Now he comes to reunite the world with forgiveness and mercy and love, and this world just simply will not have it. So this world does what it only knows how to do. It removes him. It crucifies him. He was despised, Isaiah tells us, and rejected by men. And we put him on a cross. But Christ uses our rejection as his sacrifice. And he offers his life up on the cross and sheds his blood that we might be forgiven. And the Father, as we know, is pleased with the sacrifice. And so he raises Jesus up from the dead and seats him at his right hand, which is what we celebrated on the Ascension Day. And there is Christ seated at the right hand of God. God has united all people under his feet. So that the name of Jesus, every knee, every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God will, as St. Paul writes, unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. As we talked about last week, his death reunites us and reconciles us with God and begins the work of reuniting us together. Now, as Christ is seated at the right hand of God, this is what we get to today, and this is where we find ourselves this morning, on the Sunday of Pentecost. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and from that throne, he lets his Holy Spirit loose to spread his work throughout the world. And so on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, 10 after he ascended to the right hand of God, he is sent uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, He sends his Holy Spirit, there's only one of them, into the world to reverse Babel, to undo the work that the sinners at Babel caused. So there they are in Jerusalem, thousands of Jews from all over the world who spoke all kinds of different languages. And Gary Bowman this morning pronounced about 30% of them right. So excellent job, nice work, that's a tough one. But as uh, they united, they're all there to celebrate Pentecost, all speaking different languages, and the Holy Spirit comes, and suddenly all the apostles have Jesus put into their mouths. And they go out and they all start preaching the word of God in all these various languages. And as they preach this word, as they preach all of this, they have one message. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified and has risen for you. They go out and they bring this wonderful message that your sins are pretty bad. Peter, if we'd finished that sermon today, Peter goes on to say that you are the sinners who killed him. You crucified him. And instead of rebelling against this in their pride, the people there on the day of Pentecost, were cut to the heart by the work of the Spirit. And they said, good heavens, we're done for. What must we do to be saved? And then Peter gives them the one great gift that reunites the church together. He says, repent and be baptized. 
every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And the people were baptized. And they were united as one in the name of Jesus Christ. And now that work of Pentecost continues today. The Holy Spirit comes to this place so that once again He might come to us in our own language. Today the Spirit shows up to us in English. And I might hear this wonderful news that your sins may have put Jesus on the cross, but your sins are forgiven for His sake. He shed His blood for you. He shed His blood for all of you, even you individually. And he's united you together by this word. When you were baptized, you were united to Christ and each other and the forgiveness of your sins. And so now all of us here today, though we are very different people from very different places and very different backgrounds, there's people here of different races, there are people here of different uh, uh, states of origin, there are people here with different political views, there are people here with different sports teams they cheer for, there are people here with all kinds of diversity. And yet one thing that unites us together, the forgiveness of our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. We will see this nowhere more beautifully than when we come to the altar today and we partake, as St. Paul writes, of the same spiritual food and we drink the same spiritual drink and we who are many will have the one cup and we who are many will eat the one bread and we will once again experience and enjoy the unity we have with one another in Jesus Christ and the Spirit will continue his Pentecost work. Then, as we leave the altar today, we will go home. And guess what? We will be dispersed back to the places we came from. Just like after Pentecost, the people were dispersed back to their homes and they brought the word of Jesus with them so others might come to know the good news. As you leave this place today, you will be dispersed back to your homes and the Spirit will take up residence in your heart and your mouth so others might come to join us in this place and be united by the saving message that your sins are forgiven. There's a lot of things in this world that people seek around but true unity only comes through jesus christ the jesus who died for us who rose for us and who sends us his spirit today so that all of you even you individually will know that your sins are forgiven for the sake of jesus christ amen let us pray father have mercy on us teach us to trust your word Forgive us for our babble machinations in which we try and build lives apart from your word. We try and build moralities apart from your word. We try to build religions apart from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, confuse our vain efforts and turn us back to your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that for his sake, our sins are forgiven. And now we ask that in our lives, your name would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Having heard the word of God, we invite you to please rise as we confess.